Welcome everyone to the In-House Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Wombleban Dickinson. With me as always is my producer, Brian Ewing. This episode is the second in a series of ones we're doing on the impact economy. Last time we heard from Kerry Bennett about the opportunities uh, offered for businesses as a result of the infrastructure bill. This time we're turning the tables and looking at some of the risks uh, that have developed as a result of what's going on in the White House, and in particular, some risks around antitrust enforcement. To look at that issue, I brought in uh, two of my favorite people, two of my partners, Hamilton and Sarah Stone, who practice in this area. They're going to share some insight and perspective in terms of what's going on and what you need to be thinking about as an in-house counsel as you think about antitrust risk. Um, David, let me start with you and maybe talk a little bit about what's happening now. I know President Biden's issued the executive order on promoting competition in the American economy. He did that last month on July 9th. What does that mean? What are the takeaways from it? And, And does it have any actual force of law? Yeah, thanks for the question, Mark. Um, the good news is for us antitrust lawyers, antitrust is hot. We aren't just standing around in corners talking about regression models anymore. Um, <laughs> and that's partly because antitrust law has been politicized as part of the 2020 campaign. Um, and the campaign resulted in a number of political appointments that um, manifest the Biden administration's views on antitrust law, as well as the executive order that you mentioned. First, as to the appointments, There are three that are of note. One is Tim Wu, who crafted the executive order, former Columbia law professor. Um, Second appointment was Lena Khan, who's been appointed chair of the Federal Trade Commission and was uh, part of the Ciccolini Committee Council, that role she served earlier uh, about a year ago. And the third, most recently, is Jonathan Kantner, who's been uh, charged with uh, antitrust enforcement on the criminal side at DOJ. These three appointments very much reflect that there is a battle for the soul of antitrust law. And by that, I mean uh, the Biden administration and these appointees in particular view antitrust law as inadequate and antiquated in today's society and economy. And the battles that will be fought will be fought in the executive branch, in the legislative branch, and in the judicial branch. With respect to the executive order, it was a long order that was drafted by Tim Wu It's very careful, but it has no effect of law. Right now, it's a flag in the ground. So what you can expect to see would include legislative efforts and regulatory efforts to implement the policy and executive thinking on a number of issues. Um, Various industries are targeted for enforcement. Various uh, transactions are targeted, including uh, note poach agreements and price fixing, wage fixing. And some have called this campaign promise 2.0 because it is not law at the moment. But um, again, it plants a flag in the ground, maybe to see what happens in uh, the Senate and in the House first, but also in the legislature, in the um, in the executive branch and and in the uh, in the courts. Thanks, David. Um, Yeah, interesting. And a lot of moving pieces Uh, to see the, you know, both the appointed officers and the executive order. 
Sarah, I want to talk about some of the, the practical risks. We polled our, the firm's LinkedIn followers um, about where their concerns were. And 55% said enforcing either a non-poach or non-solicit agreement was the biggest risk they face. And I do think the headlines, you know, some people read those headlines to say, oh, my God, we can't do non-competes anymore. We can't, you know, we can't have a non-solicit. I know that's not quite the case, but what what... You know, what advice are you giving to folks and legal departments as they look at this if they're worried about enforcement of some of these agreements? Thanks, Mark. Yeah, I think um, it, it certainly poses a, a lot of really interesting questions for companies, big and small. Um, we've thought about, um, you know, non-compete issues, and they have been generally speaking matters of state law for so long. Um, when you start looking at the no-poach agreements, those are the ones that really go a step beyond that. And there has been um, increased scrutiny on those over the past uh, few years with, with a number of um, both civil investigation and criminal investigations taking place on those matters. Um, what we're starting to see is with, you know, in thinking about what no-poach agreements look like, those are really the agreements that take place between the two employers, right? So when you think about what your typical non-compete is, it's the agreement between the employer and the employee, setting forth that when the employee leaves the employment, there's going to be some reasonable restriction on where he or she can be um, go to be employed next in terms of working for a competitor. And, um, you know, those are typically looked at, um, you know, as a matter of state law, looking at um, issues regarding the geographic restrictions, um, you know, the extent of um, the industry restrictions and so forth. When you look at no poach agreements, those are really, those become agreements between two competing industries. And this is where um, DOJ and FTC really get involved strongly and have been for quite some time in terms of looking at agreements between who employers not to hire each other's employees. And those um, have been found to be anti-competitive. Um, there has been increased scrutiny on these over the past um, really decade. Um, in October of 2016, a frequently cited document, um, Antitrust Guidance for Human Resources Professionals, was put out jointly by DOJ and FTC. And since that time, we've just sort of seen a continued uptick in the enforcement of these agreements um, with the idea being, I, you know, from, from my perspective, it's one thing for an employer and employee to enter into an agreement at the beginning of employment to sign a traditional non-compete. Um, it's another thing in terms of competition and looking at competition in the labor market for two employers. Um, one example we see that's come up in a lot of litigation is nursing. Um, it's one thing for two hospitals to agree, um, competing hospital systems, well, we won't hire your nurses from each other. Or we've now seen in um, the fast food industry, there's been a number of um, situations in which the franchise agreements, um, for example, um, there's been a lot of litigation over McDonald's, the franchise agreements themselves prohibited um, McDonald's franchisees from hiring employees of competing franchises. So if, you know, uh. I, if I owned a McDonald's and you owned a McDonald's, you and I are um, prohibited under the, the franchise. You can't agreement. have my fry guy. He's locked exactly, in. Exactly. The fry guy's <laughs> locked in. Um, yeah. And those have been found to be anti-competitive for, for sure. a number of reasons. So we're, we're seeing increased in, in, you know, enforcement of that. And so I think for 
for our listeners, it's really important to to kind of tap the brakes and think about, well, what specifically are you all, where are your concerns arising, right? Are these concerns arising from what I would call more of the uh, the the plain vanilla non-compete agreements um, that we would see between an employer and employee, or are we looking at more of the employer, the competitor, direct no poach type thing, which which are incredibly problematic. And, and if you all have those in place or even have those general understandings, right? The the handshake, the the wink and the nod on the golf course, right? That's really where we need to start looking at, you know, potential issues regarding your compliance programs and what you need to do to avoid you know, an investigation or, or criminal charges or something sure. significant. What is, is the primary risk simply that those will be unenforceable or are there other penalties if, if I if if McDonald's has these arrangements or two nursing homes get together and either of you, David, thoughts on on that? What What is yep. the actual pen? What, what's the risk? Does it just mean I can't enforce it or is there going to be some penalty from FTC or under the antitrust laws? Yeah, good question. Um, to follow on what Sarah said, um, there are a handful of states where non-competes are just plain out unlawful, California being the leading example. I think there are three or four others. But the, the real concern is what Sarah alluded to, and that is in December, the Department of Justice bought, brought the first criminal action against a, a therapist staffing agency um, that was uh, has been accused of coming to an agreement to suppress wages in the independent contractors that it hired. And that has multiple issues and concerns. One is obviously the criminal piece of it, but then as well, whether it's this industry or other industries, criminal indictments brought by the uh, Department of Justice are typically followed by civil litigation, notably class action cases, which is one of Sarah's areas of expertise. So. Yeah, this is a dangerous world right now, particularly given the um, the Biden administration's emphasis on addressing what it perceives are the problems in various industries. Thanks, David. I know class actions is an area, Sarah, you and I both do quite a bit of work in, and it obviously is something very scary to our clients because you've got significant liability and significant costs associated with fighting the class certification issues on top of all the normal uh, issues that you have in complex litigation. Can you give our clients, uh, the listeners, some idea of where class actions are coming in this antitrust area? Absolutely. Um, so what we typically see is the antitrust class actions on these no poach or wage fixing agreements generally but not always follow um, a DOJ enforcement action in which DOJ begins typically with a simple investigative demand and uh, will investigate the company's practices and, you know, reach some type of resolution. We then generally see the um, plaintiff's bar quickly bringing forth a class action. Um, Typically, you can see it in a couple of different ways. You can see it in terms of being brought by the customers of the industry if they believe that the no poach or the anti-competitive practices are somehow impacting the ultimate prices paid. Um, We're seeing that a little bit in the healthcare industry right now with, um, with a health first case. For example, there it's looking at not necessarily a, a no poach agreement between two competitors, but there it's more about the the hospital systems hiring and compensation practices. So again, mm-hmm. this intersection of the labor market and the antitrust environment. And then we also see it being brought on behalf of the employees themselves who claim that their wages were um, improperly suppressed 
um, okay. as a result of the no poach or the wage fixing agreement between two competing employers. Yeah, if I could, a related um, concern is the use of information exchanges. There are some that maybe in a in a bit of a cheeky way refer to trade associations plus golf plus cocktail party equal uh, price fixing, and that's that's been applied as a as a model to a number of industries. Um, information exchanges are legitimate, lawful under Supreme Court law, but are being challenged both on the criminal side and the civil side um, in a number of industries. Interesting. And I know, David, uh, you and Sarah released a client alert just last week talking about some of the dangers in this area. And it's interesting, when we conducted our LinkedIn poll after the non-poached, non-solicit enforcement, the second area was mergers and acquisitions. And I know that's addressed in the client alert. Um, you know, for, for listeners, I know for a long time, people thought, you know, mergers and acquisitions, that only applies if it's, you know, AT&T or Standard Oil, you know, go back to law school, it's got to be, you know, one of these giant monopolies. But I gather that's not, it's not necessarily that situation anymore. Can you tell us what the, what the risks are and maybe what some of the targets are in the M&A area now? Yeah, I, I think the first uh, piece of advice is that in the acquisition area, um, if it wasn't already, it certainly becomes a due diligence issue uh, to look at employee agreements and executive agreements and customer agreements and on and on and on. Um, the policy and enforcement efforts have resulted in a need to double down on, on that kind of uh, due diligence. I think a second thing that it shines a spotlight on are compliance programs. Um, compliance programs are a good thing. You get brownie points for having a compliance program, as well as eliminating or mitigating against some of the risk. Compliance programs are a cost item, frankly, for a corporation, but the amount of money spent should at least mitigate, if not eliminate, many of the uh, exposure issues that we're talking about here today. Can you tell me a little more? I know some of our smaller clients may not either, they may not have any compliance program or they may have a compliance officer, but nothing specific in the antitrust yeah. area. What, what are you seeing for that maybe mid-sized company that, that is worried about compliance, but they're not big enough to have a dedicated program? What, what does it look like for them or what are you suggesting they think about doing? Well, I think it, all companies are big enough to at least identify this as a risk. And then particularly if it's a company or companies that are um, acquiring or merging or engaged in transactional activity that creates the exposure. So, you know, it's, it's like many other issues that come up in due diligence. You have to identify the risk and then determine whether there's um, real risk that needs to be cured pre-acquisition or post-acquisition. And that's where our, our corporate folks are excellent in trying to help out in, in companies and people like me and Sarah kind of play a, a side role in identifying the risk at the outset. And, and I, would, I would add to that, you know, even if your company, you know, you're a mid-sized company and even if you're not looking at activity right now in the in the M&A space, even though it seems like everyone is, uh, I know it's such a hot market right now, um, you know, just checking in with your with your HR professionals as a starting place, those folks who are directly on the ground with some of the um, the hiring practices, the compensation practices, understanding if your company is undertaking a, a salary analysis, which obviously in, in this market right now, we keep hearing about the, the pressure being put on wage competition, um, understanding 
where your HR professionals are getting their information, what their resources are, and making sure that, you know, they are aware of some of the potential antitrust risk as they, you know, in what they think may be a, a friendly, cordial, let me just talk to my friend who's uh, who's the HR person at, at Company X, um, you know, kind of information sharing, informal conversation could actually raise antitrust risk. And that's where, you know, the the 2016 HR professionals resource document is really helpful because it's not drafted for lawyers um, and it's not drafted for those uh, for antitrust accountants. It's actually drafted to be read by your human resources folks and, and provides a nice question and answer. So even possibly just checking in with that and having that initial conversation of, you know, as we're moving into compensation season or as we're looking at, um, you know, addressing the current labor needs we have where we're seeing, you know, rising wages in a number of industries, you know, how are you working? working through this and have you considered what some of the, the compliance and antitrust risks may be? That's a great... Just as, to, a, those, uh, just as, as to those DOJ guidelines, there is considerable thought that those DOJ guidelines will be amended to reflect the current administration's thinking on the way that practices ought to be conducted. That's one of those to be determined, but um, definitely go to the 2016 guidelines, but it, it may be an evolving um, uh, area of the law. Mentioning DOJ, have there been changes in the corporate leniency program? I understand that's been a point of discussion as well. Sure. Um, right. So what we saw in the, you know, the corporate leniency program has been in place at DOJ um, within the antitrust division for for quite some time. What we saw in 2019 was a move to begin not only looking at the corporate leniency program, but starting to follow what many of the other divisions within DOJ do, which is to take into consideration compliance programs at the charging stage. Um, it's something that we've seen for a long time, for example, in the FCPA space in terms of saying, you know, as we're looking at the leniency program, which is something that allows a company to self-report, to begin taking that into consideration when making those charging decisions. And so by adhering to and by following through with the leniency program and by applying for that, you may find yourself in a position where you're able to... Uh, you know, not be charged or even potentially avoid a deferred prosecution agreement with the antitrust group. And so it really brought them in, in alignment with what we were seeing in some of the other uh, DOJ groups. And, um, you know, just just last month, the, the acting assistant attorney general for the antitrust division really credited that and credited their move for continuing to see a lot of positive movement in terms of increasing the the reliance of companies on their compliance programs, boosting their compliance programs in, in a hope that not only will they be able to take advantage of the leniency program, but hopefully that will avoid any potential criminal charges. Gotcha. Good, good advice. I, I want to turn to the future. You know, one thing that we like to do is make our listeners uh, feel and look smart by predicting what's coming down the road. So let me get you guys to look into your crystal ball. And what do you see coming in the antitrust area over the next two, three quarters as the Biden administration gets more settled, uh, as things move forward? Any predictions uh, for what companies may be uh, seeing coming down the pike? David, let me start with you. Sure. Uh, one thing I'll note at the outset, you, you know, up to this point, our discussions have been largely, maybe exclusively, domestically focused. Um, if a company's engaged in cross-border transactions, there are multiple and multitude of concerns that need to be addressed in doing 
business with European countries or Asian countries or South American countries. And probably, I think this is a fair statement, um, the law is a lot more vigorous in places uh, like the EU than it is in the United States. And so companies have to take into account um, all the regulatory and enforcement agencies that uh, they'd have to deal with in order to get regulatory approval. So one thing that I think is interesting is to look forward and think about whether past transactions will be unwound. Sounds crazy, but in the executive order, the Biden administration wants the FTC and the Department of Justice to look at uh, mergers and acquisitions that have already happened to determine whether they are enforceable or unenforceable under antitrust law. And to look back at a transaction that occurred uh, two or three years ago just seems generally unfair. Um, is that if you're in a C-suite, you're certainly going to see it that way. So to answer your question more directly, I think we're going to see increasing regulatory activity. We're going to see increasing enforcement activity, particularly in criminal area in the targeted industries that are in the executive order. And I think we're going to see um, more challenges that are going to make their way through the courts. So uh, antitrust law, as I said, there's a fight for the soul of the antitrust law, and I think that's how we're going to see it play out. Thanks, David. Good. That is scary, the idea that you did a deal a few years ago under a different administration, under a different mindset, and now it could get undone. That's got to put the strike here in the hearts of executives and shareholders alike. Sarah, what, what is your crystal ball project? Yeah, I... Um... Hold on to your hats, I think. Um, I think we're, we're going to continue seeing a lot of activity in this area. I think we're going to see, um, we're starting to see a number of the the franchise no poach cases that were filed, you know, three, four, five years ago are starting to have some pretty critical court decisions coming out, denials of class certification. Um, I think that may embolden some people on the defense side to think that they have the ability to succeed in this area. Um, but I think on the flip side, we're going to see a lot of activity on the enforcement side. And so you're, it'll be interesting to watch sort of how the court decisions and uh, the jurisprudence on sort of the the analysis of the legal claims under a, a no poach, for example, um, class action are going to kind of dovetail with the enforcement side where we know DOJ is ramping up. Um, they, are, they are talking about it. They are actively looking into a number of different um industries, and um, it's going to be an interesting uh, to watch how all that unfolds. I agree. Well, thank you both for sharing your insights. I know you both have a lot of experience in this area. Obviously, if our listeners get that call or that letter from uh, from DOJ, uh, they know how to reach you and they can find your contact information on our on our website. Um, but I appreciate you giving a heads up and people can at least begin thinking about uh, the threats that are coming down the road. So uh, thank you very much for being here. I want to remind our listeners they can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com. That's where you can see the bios uh, for David and Sarah as well. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you have questions or comments about this episode or ideas for future episodes, please share them via LinkedIn, Twitter, or email me directly. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been the In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womble Bond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer, and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.